Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Scott Mendelson from Infinity Fitness. On this episode, Scott and I discuss Scott's background. We discuss nutritional periodization. I asked Scott about the validity and reliability of food allergy testing. I asked Scott what are the first steps he takes with a client who has reached a plateau with their nutrition. I asked Scott, are elimination diets still the best method to deal with food intolerances and allergies? I asked Scott to share with us how he works with his online clients. I asked Scott, how does he monitor his clients' training volume? I asked Scott, how does he determine the appropriate training volume for his clients throughout their training? I asked Scott, how does he deal with clients who are afraid of getting fat when wanting to gain muscle mass? I asked Scott, when he feels a client needs to reduce their training volume, how does he prescribe this adjustment? I asked Scott what are some of the main differences he finds when working with females versus males. I asked Scott who have been his biggest professional and personal influences. I asked Scott how does he learn. Scott shares with us his biggest lessons he's learned so far in his life. I asked Scott how can clients determine if a coach is competent. I asked Scott how does he define success. Scott shares with us his top resources. I asked Scott if he only had one year left on planet Earth, how would he spend that year and why? Scott and I discussed the importance of understanding human behavior. I asked Scott for his top and current book recommendations. 
I asked Scott if he wasn't from America, where would he like to be from? And finally, if Scott could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who'd he invite and why? Guys, this was a great conversation with Scott, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. All right, Scott, we are rocking and rolling. Thanks so much for making time. Uh, this is going to be a, a really interesting podcast because, to be honest, although we've met each other twice, um, last time being back, back in July at the uh, um, ISI Summit, the Irish Strength mm-hmm. Institute Summit back in July, when you were over with... Um, Dr. Serrano and Ryan. Um, right. We 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 you know we, we had a good we had a few um, conversations over that weekend, but we've only ever met many other twice. We met each other actually two years before that when John Meadows was over with you guys, with yourself, okay. and Dr. Serrano. But yep. yeah, as I said, we discussed a few times uh, over the course of the weekend this year, and you were like, you know, I was like, would you like to come on the podcast? You were like, love it, and so here we are. But aside mm-hmm. from that, we don't know much about one another, so give us a bit of a background. Mm-hmm. Uh, for close to 20 years, I've been helping a wide range of clients transform in terms of improving body composition and performance, and that would range from everything from professional athletes to business people to um, everything in between. With the athletes, they do more nutrition supplementation, but with everybody else, it's more training and nutrition. And I was one of the first people doing personalized internet programs back in 1999. Fuck and hell. Uh, you know, yeah. when email was just getting started, and then shortly after that, um, I was posting a lot of videos online in terms of exercise instruction, and clients were looking at those videos to execute their programs. And look, now, you know, a lot of people are, are, are doing that. And that's one of the things, you know, I'm working on with the website that was redone recently is building a huge exercise library of the unique stuff that Dr. Serrano has developed, uh, a lot of his unique ideas, a lot of mine. And to keep growing that, and so people can watch on their phone, on their tablets, whatever, and benefit from it. Now, of course, the exercises are great, having strategies and how they apply to you, and you know, building personalized programs um, is, is very important in terms of the bottom line. And you and I just spoke about what is it that breaks plateaus. Mm. Well, uh, from the training perspective, I see thousands of programs every year from people emailing me their programs, you know, asking for advice or things of that nature. I would say about 90 to 95% are completely inappropriate for what that person's trying to accomplish, but they were free and they were given to them by an expert of some sort, um, you know, as some kind of offering and something like that. And there's nothing wrong with giving out free programs and, and getting them, but does that necessarily fit your needs? I find in most cases it does not for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I, I find myself saying multiple times each day, uh, it takes more than training hard and training often in the gym to make progress whether you're trying to gain muscle or lose body fat or a combination of the two. There needs to be strategies. I believe that uh, a majority or a large percentage of people that train regularly are constantly flirting with overtraining because they're using high volume programs that may be appropriate for the genetic elite or those that are using illegal drugs, but not for them. And in terms of nutrition, you cannot use the same diet and same program all the time and achieve success. There needs to be macronutrient cycling, which we can dive into. Yeah. Um, I think also there's a very large percentage of the population that's suffering from food allergies, irritations, and intolerances from eating the same things over and over again. And that's an area that Dr. Serrano's researched very extensively in his office with a lot of data. Um, on that particular topic. So those are some things that come to mind when breaking plateaus. 
uh, changing the training program to something you need, uh, making strategic changes to the nutrition program, including macronutrient cycling. Those are probably two of the biggest um, that uh, you know I look to get into when helping clients uh, break plateaus. Yeah, I'm actually very interested in nutritional periodization because we we always hear, we always talk about oh if you've hit a plateau like you need to change up your training. And yeah. No one ever actually talks about well you need to change up your diet too because the law of accommodation or adaptive resistance is 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 a biological law in all facets of life like i think that in a training community we only ever think about it in training because we read it in the science and practice of strength training or we we hear louis talk about it but again call it what you want accommodation the law of diminishing returns or adaptive resistance it's applicable across all domains of life and an example i always give is like like if me and you scott were like caged up in a box for 10 years together our adaptive, yep. our adaptive sensitivity would go down an awful lot. Like we would, mm-hmm. we, we would really start to adapt to one another. But like then if we didn't see each other for like 50 years, like say we were mm-hmm. in a prisoner war camp and then we didn't see each other for 50 years, we would build back up a sensitivity. And nutrition comes with that then it's like good insulin. You know, if you keep, if you keep spiking insulin, mm-hmm. you build up a resistance. So you need to like resensitize yeah. So yeah, maybe touch on uh, nutrition periodization strategies there. I- I'm quite interested in that. And I've heard things of even protein cycling. Like, is that something you've looked into as well? Obviously, like everyone knows about carbohydrate cycling, but do you cycle fats? Do you cycle proteins? Give us, give us a rundown there on that. Yes, absolutely. Cycling uh, proteins, dietary fats, as well as carbohydrates in a strategic fashion. And, you know, I, I catch myself saying this very often each day too, is eating clean, so to speak, is not enough to earn a low body fat, you know? There, there needs to be strategies. So you can cycle those macronutrients. And the way to make it simple is there could be one or two different, or one or two days a week where you change the macronutrient percentages by manipulating a, a certain meal. So dietary fat loading is something that Dr. Serrano is very well known for. And uh, a lot of people initially thought he was crazy and he doesn't care. But um, you know, dietary fat loading, for example, does a very good job of naturally optimizing testosterone levels, increasing fat burning enzymes, and breaking up metabolic staleness. And that could be using some dietary fat loading meals with organic sources, such as um, increasing your dietary fat from grass-fed beef for, uh, for some meals, as well as extra virgin olive oil and avocados, and actually lowering the protein so your dietary fat as a percentage of overall calories is much uh, higher on that day which has demonstrated the ability in literature to support higher testosterone levels. You know, there's some interesting papers he brought up um, at a seminar he was doing in March of 2018 at the Arnold Classic, where it shocked a lot of people in the audience. And it's the, the paper um, concluded that the higher your percentage of overall food intake from protein uh, relative to dietary fat, the lower your testosterone levels were. And raising dietary fats had a good impact on testosterone. So it was, it was an interesting paper. I don't have it at my fingertips. But that would be one example. And you think of it this way. Just like training, the nutrition plan has to change strategically to avoid staleness. You know, you think of proteins, dietary fats, and, and carbohydrates as your sets and reps and different variables to change. Because the body becomes very efficient at using fuel sources. You give it the same things, the same time, the same ratios it becomes very stagnant in terms of it just does what it needs to do to survive and, you know, fuel, fuel daily energy, but not going to do a whole lot in terms of changing body composition, which takes a lot more resources. Mm. Um, yeah. If, if you could source those papers, be great. I'll put them in, in the show notes. Just, you mentioned food, food allergies there as well. Yeah. Like, 
is there, what what is the story with testing for that? Is there any good legitimate tests to 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 really prove the sensitivity? Because I hear most of the time for most people that most of the tests are brutal, they're crap. Like, as in, loads of people would draw their 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 own blood and send, like twice and send it off. So the same blood and they send it off with a fake name, their own name, and they come back with completely different results. So they're, yeah, they question like the validity of these tests. There's a couple different tests in the U.S. The one, well, there's a lot of them, I'm sure, but the one that uh, Dr. Serrata uses most often is called ALA test. That's A-L-L-E-T-E-S-T. I've used that myself a couple times. I've used it for clients, and it generates a report, and I believe it's accurate because when you remove the most offensive foods on that list, people see an almost miraculous change in certain symptoms. Uh, could be fatigue, stomach upset, joint problems, skin issues, difficulty losing body fat, difficulty gaining muscle. And by implementing those changes, it couldn't all be just mental. Um, and the follow-up testing would give you some other strong indications that uh, when the test is followed, that many of these allergies clear up over time. Skin tests are good for you know detecting anaphylactic shock and so forth, they're not good for detecting all food allergies. So with that particular blood test, the ALA test, yeah, I think it's very accurate. Could there be other tests out there that are no good? Sure, you know, but um, I'm, I'm not familiar with any of those. That's the one that I've used consistently. Just when clients do come to you with plateaus or issues, are there certain just fundamental like fundamental principles you make sure are boxed off before you start going down maybe some advanced routes like you know functional lab testing or getting people to spend all this like a load of money on tests like do you, do you like tick off things like hold on like how much water do you drink what's your sleep like what's your overall stress in your life like like shows your meal portion sizes like do you kind of tick off like just basic things first before like saying you need all these tests that are going to cost like, like five grand yeah yeah uh, i mean that wouldn't be the first thing that i would do and you know when i have a client approach me uh, through the internet or wherever, we're not doing any tests. We're looking at, you know, the lowest hanging fruit first to change. Yeah. But I may look at the foods they're eating most often and rotate them out, knowing that there's likely a food allergy or irritation or intolerance there and see if that makes progress. And Dr. Serrano is the same way. He's not going to order a bunch of tests just for the, you know, the fun of it. Um, he's going to look at the situation. How desperate is it? Is there a serious problem? Is it needed right then and there? But no, it's not the first thing that I would do. Um, I think there's a lot of other things that are more basic and lower fundamentally down the chain that I would do first. Um, you know, look, you can dive into all kinds of tests and spend tens of thousands of dollars while you're missing some simple things. I agree with you. So you have to look from, from the base first. And this is something that drives me crazy is, you know, in, in some cases, Dr. Serrano's patients, I'll work with them on nutrition stuff where he'll tell me some things he wants done and some of the parameters. And these people have these problems, yet they can't follow a diet. They can't eliminate refined foods from their diet, you know, things that they know that are bad for them. But it's kind of like you're corrupting all the information because you don't have the discipline to do basic things. Those are very difficult people to deal with. And frankly, I don't, you know, it's kind of like at a certain point, um, those are the most difficult. They drain a lot of your time and energy. And frankly, they can't be helped until they make a decision that they can do some things consistently so you kind of know what you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, but those are the ones that most often waste a lot of money on tests because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. So you kind of don't know what's going on. Is the evidence for rotating foods purely empirical? Like I, I, under, I understand like the, the sort of 
like I understand why people say rotate foods, you know, because if you eat the same thing, you can build up antigens to it. But like, first of all, is there good evidence to support that? And then second of all, like, is it is it just by rotating rotating the foods? Is it just through empirical evidence that people said, oh, doing this seems to be better? Or is there actually any hardcore evidence for this? You know, I don't know. I'd have to ask Dr. Serrano what research he's looked at or if it all is all just based on his observations. I can tell you based on my own work with uh, some of his patients, myself and some other clients, when certain things come up on this particular test, it's very reactive and you eliminate them. There's usually an instant result in terms of reduction of some kind of problem. Yeah. Um, and I think in general, rotating foods is a good idea. Um, how much hard scientific evidence in terms of study, I don't know. I don't know who's motivated to really research that in any university level or other places because I don't know how much money there is behind it, right? Very There's true. no Very medication true. that's going to come from it or things like that. So you find that most of these institutions are studying things where there's some kind of profit angle at the end, which to me is perfectly okay. If you're going to run a trial to see if the medication it helps something, great, it is what it is. But in terms of rotating foods, where's the money? So who's going to fund these types of studies? I don't know. So I don't, I'm thinking there's probably not a whole lot um, out there. I would think probably the companies that are doing the testing probably have some data, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But I'm very convinced based on the success that I've seen with his patients and with clients that I've worked with and myself. And sometimes you can very simple thing. You can have something like... Um, Black pepper, for example, which shows up on my test is very reactive. It's in a lot of foods. I eliminated that, um, and I had a lot easier time breathing and some other things. It's like, how is this connected? So it's kind of like, why not you know, do one of these tests if you're having an issue, if it can produce a good result for you? Follow it for a while, see how it works, and the proof's in the pudding. But it takes a lot of discipline to do because some of these foods or spices or things like that are in so many things you are kind of restricted for a little while um, and that eating out is difficult. You got to be very careful, but uh, giving it four to six weeks for some people is miraculous for some people, not as much. It's, you know, yeah, it really depends. I think there is some research on like, you know, a diverse diet and like microbiome health and there. Like, I think anyway, if, if anyone's listening to this and they have stuff on like diversity of nutrients and microbiome health, because I think I, I basically what's ringing in my head is i'm fairly sure i've heard i listen to so many podcasts like it's hard to know the exact source but basically like the more diverse your diet like the better it is for the microbiome and like the bacteria in your gut and stuff like that but again i'd have to i'd have to go research that to, to we were meant to rotate food seasonally as well you know with climate oh, yeah. change at certain times of the year um and then also the way the foods are processed to become very standardized perhaps i mean one of the things that irritates people most is whey protein and casein protein. They're highly concentrated dairy. Um, they don't have dietary fat in them to the extent they're supposed to. It's kind of a very artificial concoction. And that's one of the most common things that really sets people off. Because if you look at Joe Bodybuilder, for lack of a better name, he eats three meals or four meals, and in between meals two or three times a day, he's having shakes or bars. He's retaining water. He's constantly bloated. His digestive system is irritated and inflamed. You take out the whey and the casein, and within a week, there's almost instant reduction in symptoms. Yeah. One of the most common ones. And it's because they've become so irritated uh, based on consuming this over and over and over again. The body doesn't like it. And, and, know, and the fact... No and the fact that they're eating a fucking ton of broccoli or cauliflower, like a ton of it to keep themselves feel full and like all that fiber and roughage as well going into it. Yeah. I mean, there could be a lot of things that um, 
uh, could contribute to the problems. But, you know, we found removing the weight in the casing, almost an instant uh, uh, reduction of water weight and other problems. So I think we, that's I think just we, one example. I think we've all experienced that. Anyone who's been in sort of the fucking, the, the strength game has all experienced the blow from having too much whey protein and casing at one right. stage in their life. Yeah, it's a rotten feeling. Right. So yeah. when, you, when, you yeah, when you over-consume protein, it's, it's, it, yeah, and it just like sits in your stomach. It's rotten. But listen, Can't digest well. Oh yeah, I want to ask you. Uh, I'm a client, let's say, and I contact you. How, how does it work? What's the process like? Uh, what sort of assessment process is there? What's the intake? What sort of do you need from information standpoint? And basically, where does it go from there? So basically, what's your whole training system basically from intake to pres- prescription and then to like monitoring your clients? I'm looking first and foremost, and what are their goals? What are they trying to achieve? What kind of time periods? Uh, what's their injury history? You know, I collect a detailed questionnaire. I'm looking at pictures to assess them physically because most of the people that are coming to me are wanting to improve body composition, which is easier to do from a distance than somebody that has to improve max strength or an athlete where you really have to be one-on-one and doing assessments. So again, I don't work with athletes for the most part in terms of training from a distance because I don't think that's a good combination, but nutrition wise, work with anybody from a distance, you know, because it's, it's different. You don't have to be eyes on. Um, so I'm looking at a host of information and a questionnaire Then I'm having follow-up questions. And then I'm thinking critically as to what is the right training nutrition protocol that differs from what they're doing now that's going to best suit their needs. And I'm not right 100% of the time. Anybody that tells you that is completely full of crap or doesn't really work with real clients. And there's a lot of those. I hear about them all the time. Um, so I have a very good success rate with giving people new programs and get them excited about training again, get them excited about, um, putting effort into their nutrition program to be consistent because I explain what they do, why we're doing it and what the benefits are. Um, in most cases I'm doing less volume than what they were doing, focusing on more intensity. I'm using all kinds of different, different training parameters like, it could be um, specialized different executions with pauses. Um, it could be um, using a variety of different antagonistic supersets. I mean, there's so many different things that we do. Um, it's really, I'm looking for what's going to be fresh for that person at that particular time. You know, if you're somebody that's been doing three sets of 10, well, it's like, that's so basic and rudimentary. You, you can do so many different things to increase the intensity and the density uh, to bring upon a great result because the muscles are bored, the nervous system is bored. I mean, you'd be amazed at some people who use the same programs over and over again because they worked back 10 years ago. Well, things change in terms of the nervous system, the, the muscles, the hormonal status, and many other factors. So I don't have one set uh type of parameter that he's for everybody and a lot of it is uh instinctual in terms of what do i think is going to work for that person and then i assess their progress and I make refinements ongoing and in a vast majority of cases i'm right in terms of i think i've hit the sweet spot with what they need at that given time but uh, it's it's hard i mean you're trying to balance a lot of factors in terms of what's going to work best for that person and i'm winning a whole lot more than i'm losing um, you know, I like that, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these people that says overnight I can change your life and I'm going to guarantee this and guarantee that that's the kiss of death. If you find one of these people online who's never met you, you know, and they, they're starting to communicate with you and they have exactly what you need on order right there. And they're going to make everything better tomorrow. Then 
that's a sign that they're completely full of crap. And what they're going to do is give you a generic program. Um, and that's what's commonplace in the market now is um, many of these coaches have four or five generic programs they give out to everybody. And, you know, they collect the fees. And some people work out, some people don't. And they just move on. You know, I actually put a lot of time in designing plans, a lot of time and effort uh, into, into doing that. And uh, I produce very good outcomes in a high percentage of cases, not all the time. Mm. What well, what's the minimum time like duration or like the, the minimum time commitment that you want from a client like in terms of weeks you'd prefer at least eight weeks, twelve weeks? Twelve. Twelve. You know, yeah. that gives me the ability to give them two unique training cycles of six weeks where many of the parameters are going to change over the course of the six weeks. Um, you're going to cha- have changes in the repetition counts, the speed of the reps, the rest periods, and many other things that I found to work well to prevent staleness, right? You can't use the same program for many weeks in a row without it becoming stale. So you have to change many parameters. But in 12 weeks, I would expect that I have found some areas where I've improved your outcome where you can say, yeah, I want to continue with this. And in most cases, they do. You know, I I have most of these clients for a long period. I've had some for over 15 years where they've never repeated the same program once. And I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, you know, one guy comes to mind, he's a, a college professor in California and he is, he's strong. I would put him up against, and he's, you know, probably 185 pounds, but you know, he's been doing programs for so long that I've had a chance to build up so many of his strength qualities. But he's one that comes to mind that I was talking to recently. It's, you know, been over 15 years and he's never repeated the same program. And he thought that was impressive. I said, yeah, it takes a lot of work. Good example of a guy that's been very consistent um, in discipline programs. That's what he likes to do. He teaches on a certain subject matter, but he doesn't want to spend a lot of time, you know, working on his own programs because that's not his expertise, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, why not go to you, somebody that has a lot more experience than I do and is on the cutting edge of it? He goes, if you want to know about, he teaches a certain scientific subject matter. He goes, if you want to know about that, come to me. (laughs) You know, if I want to know about training, I go to you. How diligent are you in tracking your clients' volumes and intensities? Do you worry much about that? Does it depend on their training age? For more advanced, you might be a little more particular about that versus a beginner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the more advanced they are, the more the more important the details are. Looking at their recovery factors, I tend to err more on the side of below their training capacity to avoid any kind of overtraining. I just, you know there's a critical drop-off point in terms of training where should the program stop and i have a lot of things i do for that where the client can during a particular training session you know adjust the volume based on what's going on that tends to help keep keep people out of trouble but i'm looking at their records in terms of their strength i want to see some improvements over the course of six weeks if not that tells me something's going on with effort recovery fueling or you know any other number of issues where i've got to take a step back and try to figure it out yeah, and in, in terms of, as you kind of just as you spoke there, it put this question in my head. What do you do from a monitoring standpoint in terms of that? So another thing you kind of touched on there too is a, like it's a really interesting question. And like when you hear this question first, you're kind of like, you're kind of, your first reaction is, oh, we, we know that. And then like you're like, actually, we don't. And the question is like, how much do you prescribe? As in like, how much volume is enough for someone? Because it fluctuates like on such a moment-to-moment basis. So like, you know, I suppose the real answer is auto-regulation really is the only way. So my question is, yeah, like how do you 
how do you auto-regulate with your clients or how do you manage like their volumes? Because, I mean, maybe one day they need five sets to elicit uh, an adaptation, whereas another day they just don't have the capacity to adapt the five sets and three is enough. Going into the session, I'm going to have them consider what was their sleep like the night before, what are their stress levels to give okay. them some indication as to what's going on. If they're into, let's say, their second or third set of an exercise and they are approaching failure by the time they're at the end, probably a good time to cut it off mm. at that particular exercise and then move on to the rest of the program and use a similar number of sets there. So, okay. you know, let's say in a particular movement, they had three to five sets. If at three, they're feeling very stimulated, yet at the same time, very taxed, there's no benefit to doing four and five. Very good. Very good, Jeff. So you, you, you wanted... You sort of give them a range to work with and say, if you're feeling great today, go up to the five sets. If you're feeling yes. not as good, cut it a tree. Yes. And this is a good way to keep people out of trouble who are very um, ambitious, right? They're the kind of people that are good to work with. They want to fight through problems. They, they want to give it a great effort. Yeah. yeah. If, but if it says five sets of 10, to, yeah, they're the people that if it says five sets of 10, they'll do it come hell or high you water. Have to, you have to protect them against themselves, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. In, in many ways. And then you have others that are very lazy. That uh, <laughs> This is, and it's a hard thing to deal with. It's like when you send me a program and you have a dumbbell press and you're an adult male who's 40 years old, you weigh 180 pounds and you're pressing 15 pounds, there's something wrong. And I don't run into that very often, but there's some people that are disconnected from reality. It's like, yeah. if you think that's, a challenging weight load there's something off um, and so you have to push some of these people to gradually challenge themselves and increase the load um, and tell them if you were to fail it's okay you know I mean, obviously you don't want to injure yourself but um, you know you have to uh, push out of your comfort zone so you have some of those that uh, don't want to do enough volume that don't want to push the intensity but a more common one is if I see five sets, I want to get all five sets, so I'm going to hold back on the weight load that I'm using so I can get all five sets. No, you want to push the on the proper form and what other parameters I have in place with three sets with a very challenging load and then skip sets four and five to get quality for one, two, and three. Very, very important, especially, again, to avoid overtraining. Yeah, very good. How do you deal with clients who are afraid to put on weight? And what I mean by this is that they'll come to you and go and say, oh yeah, like, like say like the young male and he's, he's really lean, has a six pack and all that. And he's like, I want to put on some muscle, but he's too afraid that he'll get fat. I think it's a function of having discipline with the diet and um, making sure they're focusing on the right things there. Um, that comes down to a lot of, you know, discipline. If you want to gain muscle, but you don't want to gain body fat, then don't complain to me about how you're not getting enough cheat meals or other bullshit, yeah. you know? Um, so if you don't want to gain fat, then don't eat refined foods and don't eat trans fats and don't eat many of these other things that are almost no brainers. You know, I don't usually run into that as a problem where people are gaining muscle and then putting on body fat at the same time. We're usually, at a pretty good ratio in terms of muscle to fat mass. And I think that has a lot to do with discipline and designing the programs yeah. correctly. Probably a lot of people that are trying to gain muscle uh, are overdoing it on the carbohydrate intake. Uh, maybe their meal frequency is too high. Maybe they're running into some food allergies. Those are common ones. But the mindset for a lot of people is, well, I did a fat loss cycle. Now I want to gain muscle and I want to get away from, you know, the diet stuff where I was hungry and all this. 
So I'm going to purposely overeat for a period of time and they get really sloppy. And then all of a sudden they put on a lot of body fat. So bad execution, just uh, kind of subconsciously sabotaging themselves. But these are things that I look at in the nutrition records to know, hey, you know, th this isn't going to work here. Let's, we got to make this change before it becomes a problem. Yeah, no, because I just, I, I see it like, as in I see a lot of lads, like, and they're like, oh, I want to put on weight. And then it's just like, they're clearly under eating, like, because they're too afraid to put on fat. Like, you know, and they're wondering why they're not getting bigger. And just, they're just not eating enough, though. They're not, they aren't eating enough calories. Yeah, yeah, you have to break it down for a lot of people, um, even to the point of looking at pictures of what they're eating. Are their portion sizes what you think they are? Yeah. You know, kind of an audit to go through a lot of the details. And that's part of what I do, looking at, you know, some of the simple stuff. And before we get into, well, we need to do this complex thing, well, we need to make sure the basics are down and that yeah. you and I are speaking the same language, you know. Um, and uh, that's something that I've solved before. You know, it uh, takes a lot of work to help a lot of clients get things right. But once you do after the initial stages, it becomes very easy to execute. You know, I never want programs to be a big hassle or stress for somebody to follow. I mean, part of the point is to make it a low stress process where I take care of a lot of the thinking. You give me the information that I need. I make adjustments and you go on with other things in your daily life that require your time and energy. Yeah. You were saying there you, you come across a lot of people training too much in terms of volume. When you're reducing that volume, do you reduce it by reducing volume within a session or do you take away, do, do you reduce the training frequency in terms of days? Like say someone's gone to the gym five days a week, you might say, listen, we're, we're going to get you only off three days here a week. Like how, how do you, well, how do you reduce that? You do per session and per, per session per with volume within a session and session per week. You do both. Both. Um, you know, there's somebody that contacted me yesterday um, that's a good example. Five times a week, 90 minutes. Um, and not making good progress. I think the guy's in his early 30s, um, has a job, married, has a pretty, it sounds like demanding job in terms of mental capacity, not physical, you know, kind of executive type of position. Um, I'm thinking when I work on this guy's program this weekend, I'm going to cut him back to four sessions a week of 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to negotiate. I'm yeah, going to tell yeah. him this is what it's going to be. Now, he may lie to me and he may go in and do more than what I'm telling him, which would be a mistake. But, you know, that's what I'm probably after my initial look at a lot of his information, what I'm going to do. And I'm almost certain that he's going to have a very good response to that reduction in volume and some improvements in intensity that we're going to do. Because I think he's just been surviving his sessions yeah, you know, yeah, based on what I've seen there because the volume's been too high. Do you find, do you work with a lot of females too? And if so, what, what, what's the big difference you, if there is any, what, what's the difference between males and females that you most commonly see when you're working with them? Uh, I think a lot of females, uh, boy, it depends on their experience level. Many of them have reservations about weight training and doing so with a lot of effort because some of them are worried about gaining muscle. Um, many of them are very unfamiliar with weight training, so there's some you know, more basics that you have to explain. They are very good about following directions, I think, more so than, uh, than men. You know, most of the women will, will, will take your advice with uh, – uh, less uh, arguments, so to speak, you know, probably because they're not as dogmatic and hooked into a certain belief system. But, you know, there there's uh, different things about males and females that, that come up. I mean, uh, in a way, many females are easier to work with because they don't have as many bad habits. 
Um, in a way, some of them are very difficult because they're influenced a lot by the media tabloids in regards to what they think they should be eating because 95% of women think they need to eat yogurt every day or they're going to die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Joking. I mean, it's like in the U.S., you see these ads constantly for all this dairy crap, you know, and they see, you know, women, you know, and they think it's good. It's not, right? So I have to break a lot of the mainstream you know, habits they're seeing in advertisements constantly and kind of re-educate them um, in many degrees. Um, and then another thing with women is, well, I cook different things for my kids and I want to eat that and I know it doesn't fit your plan. Well, when we break it down, then they see realize that a lot of things they're feeding their kids aren't so good for them. So they kind of take them in the other direction and try to change the kid's diet and their own at the same time, which ends up being a very productive thing for um, a lot of them, because in the U.S., a lot of people are crunched for time. They want to do quick things, and those don't end up being the best food choices because they're trying to get kids fed and deal with homework and deal with sport activities and stuff like that. So they're very, you know, pressed for time. So that's something you battle a lot with women because they're doing a lot of family food prep and they don't want to do a lot of extra. Why the fuck would you want kids? <laughs> they're a lot of work, you know, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but just, that's one of the challenges that, that women and men, you know, face in terms of their daily lives. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the kids have a ton of activities and obligations and that, you know, takes up a lot of their time. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm slightly joking there just for the listeners, just in case. But anyway. Right. I'm definitely not ready for kids yet. I'm still a bachelor and I quite like my lifestyle. Uh, just bachelor ladies, just in case you're listening. Um, Scott, who's been your biggest influences on you professionally and personally and professionally? I'd say probably Dr. Serrano I've learned the most from. You know, I'm, I'm lucky he's about 10 miles away from me, and I've known him since, uh, boy, 1998. Um, so we do a lot of training together. Uh, uh, you know, I work with a lot of his patients. We're constantly looking at different things in terms of research stuff on different email chains. Uh, smart guy. Um, you know, he's been practicing medicine for over 30 years, and his practice is much different, especially compared to most American doctors, which are very traditional, but he's very out of the box. A lot of his practice involves unique nutrition protocols and different testing. He does a lot with weight training um, to deal with injuries. Um, you know, really, really smart guy. Oh, mad scientist, as I like to call him. He's on a completely different wavelength, you know, than I think than, um, than many people. But yet, he can take very complicated things and, and explain them in very simple terms for patients who uh, need to do certain things to improve their outcomes. So that's a unique skill set because his line of thinking, I know he's got all kinds of things bouncing around his brain in terms of what he needs to do comprehensively while making it simple for a patient to execute. And that's a hard thing to do when you have, you know, a certain amount of time when somebody comes to meet with you, you know, as a patient, you need to do this, this, and this, and how do you get them to comply? So really cares a lot about patients um, and, and a big innovator, um, not afraid to uh, try new things, you know, based on research or things that other practitioners have told him, and really test it out for himself. Does this work? Does it not work? Who does it work with? What's the best thing for my patient? So I get to uh, absorb a lot of that information and knowledge and see what's, uh, what's going on uh, in the real world, and he gets to see a lot of people over the course of a week. So we benefit from that and seeing so many different cases. It's very interesting. Yeah, he's a crazy bastard. He's great, though. <laughs> yeah he's gas he's a gas man how do you learn 
What's your learning style? What's your learning technique? Say, say there's a topic, um, you, there's a topic you want to know everything about. How do you go about mastering that? Uh, certainly, you know, I'll, I'll try and find things on the internet in terms of that are research-based reading papers. I'll look to some other experts that are doing, you know, video uh, explanations on things that I can watch. You know, I might ask somebody else I know who's familiar with something, pick their brain on a particular topic, and then a lot of experimentation with clients to you know, see what works. I don't know that there's any one venue um, that I like. I get a lot of uh, books on audio. Those are more business stuff. You know, I don't, um, you know, even when I look on Audible, I don't see a whole lot besides your mainstream diet books, which make me want to throw up. You know, you don't see a whole lot in terms of nutrition and training stuff on Audible, for example, which is very convenient. But, you know, mostly it's like, you know, this diet book by this yeah, you know, nonsensical Gary, person. You Gary Tobbs, good calories, bad calories. I, okay, yeah, I can check it out. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's some good ones out there. There's some out there that it's so obvious that the person's face is on this book has not written it or have anything yeah, to do with yeah. it. It's it's almost completely stupid. I don't get it because there's not a whole lot of profit as far as I know in selling books anyway. So I, I don't understand why some of these people, you know, everybody's like, well, I've achieved this, this, and this, and I'm an actor, so I might as well come out with a diet book and a training book. And there's one in particular I'm thinking of. His information is so bad um, that, you know, it, it's almost criminal. Um, yet he espouses himself as an expert. There's two that I can think of. Very, very famous, very, very wealthy, egos that are huge, and their information sucks and how they've achieved a good level of conditioning can only come down to their use of illegal drugs and fantastic genetics. Because the things that they're doing are getting people hurt, they're overtraining people, they're making them miserable, yet they're on Instagram every day talking about how they're grinding and living the life and everybody should follow what they're doing. And I don't understand why, what the motivation is behind it, because it's clearly not money because yeah. they've already got enough of that. I, I don't get it because they're completely out of their field. So just going back to the question, you, you look up research papers, you watch videos, yes. you, you listen to some audio books. Is there, and like just in terms then like of taking the information you've acquired and then putting it into practice, how do you go about that? Experimentation with clients without them knowing, you know, <laughs> uh, thinking about different training things, you know, would this be a good situation for somebody who's trying to gain muscle yet has some shoulder dysfunction, so I can't do a lot of loading necessarily. How do I deload the joint while providing a lot of fiber stimulation? You know, uh, there is a, a female physician, interesting lady, uh, that I was exchanging emails with last night, and she likes something called time-variant training. It's something that uh, Dr. Serrano developed where it involves, let's say, a certain number of reps, and then you're pausing at a certain point for anywhere from 15 to 30 seconds. Well, she's very intelligent, so when she saw this and knew she had a shoulder problem, she's like, well, why don't I try this? Because I know it'll put less tension on the joint, but she has some kind of chronic shoulder problem before you know, I, I had come into contact with her, and it worked very well. Um, and that was kind of the theory when we were doing that and doing some videos on it. Well, you know, people can get a lot of loading this way and stimulation of the muscle fibers but put less stress on the joint because they're not moving as much through a range of motion. You know, they're reducing, you know, the different shearing forces and it works real well. Just an example. Does the client need to know what I'm doing all the time? No, you don't. It's not an internship. This is for me to give you a program that's going to produce a result. 
With that said, am I going to do something that I think would be particularly dangerous for somebody? No, I won't do that. Yeah. But am I going to try something that I'm not absolutely sure is going to work? Yeah, I will. Yeah. You know, so you learn by a lot of uh, things that clients do and how do they respond to them and take some calculated risks. Because let's say if I have somebody who's been training for 20 years, well, they have a very mature nervous system. You better come up with some things that are new to their nervous system and that doesn't leave you with a lot of traditional options. I mean, I can't flip open a book of the Joe Weider principles and expect to give something to somebody that's new. You know, that's just an example. I've never actually read that. But, um, you know, you have to think outside the box in terms of things that are going to produce a great bang for the buck uh, without necessarily a lot of other peers that have tried. Yeah. Great stuff. What would you say have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your career and your life? So whether it's one big lesson or maybe uh, two to three big lessons, what would you say have been the big lessons you've had so far? In terms of the training realm or overall? Everything. Everything in your life could be anything. Okay. All right. Training. Don't overtrain. Um, Be disciplined with program design and get expert help because you think you know what you're doing and you don't. Okay. Mm. You know, when I assess, again, a lot of programs from people, they're working hard. They're not working smart. In uh, terms Scott, of the Scott, diet, Scott yeah. just for, just for you go on there. So you say you get an expert. How how do client how should clients go about knowing the person they work with is legit? Great point. Great point. That person should be producing good results or great results for people in similar situations to you. So if I go on the internet and I'm searching at a bodybuilding coach and I'm not a bodybuilder and this guy's coaching a lot of people in their 20s that are using illegal drugs, and I'm Joe Accountant sitting behind a desk, is that a good coach for me? No. No. Because he doesn't work with your situation. He has an expertise in a certain area. Just like if it was a professional bodybuilder that approached me, I would say, no, I'm not going to work with you because I don't know all the ins and outs of what you do, and, and, you know, what you do is impressive. You know, I mean, the discipline and how the, the dedication that many of them have is impressive, but I've never dealt with professional bodybuilder, don't, not really interested in it because of all the peripheral crap. So I'm not a good choice for them. Yeah. But send send him to John Meadows. Are, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, evidently he's, he knows what he's doing. He's in yeah. good shape. You know, I, I don't really um, deal a whole lot in that world, but a good example. But, uh, if you are uh, somebody that has a high level of stress, you're 44 years old, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, you think you can get a better uh, improvement in your body composition and quality of life, I'm the person to talk to yeah. because I know how to solve a lot of complex problems uh, for those people and have the right strategies. Yeah, you know, So you've got to look at can this person or has this person produce results for people with similar challenges to me, to my situation? That's a good way to assess it. It doesn't necessarily need to be somebody you pull up on Instagram who's in great shape. And I can think of, you know, again, many of them where I've had conversations with these people and they know very, very little about trick, very little. It's amazing that they've gotten into good shape. But again, they're in the genetic elite. So they kind of touch a weight. They're in great shape. So automatically people should come to them and get programs. That's not the way it works. That, that's a problem. Now, there are some people on social media venues who are in great shape or very knowledgeable. I think they're few and far between. I think that uh, most of them are, uh, you know, avid self-promoters. They lack in substance, uh, most, unfortunately. So you need to get references uh, in some cases. You need to uh, perhaps, um, you know, get a referral from somebody you know 
uh, that's worked with a particular trainer to say this person's good or this person produced a great outcome from me. That's the way I would approach it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry, going back to our question there. So it was biggest lessons in training. You said don't overtrain, get a coach. Then you were just about to move on to nutrition, and then I interrupted with that question. Yeah, can't, can't eat the same things all the time. Have to rotate foods to avoid food allergies, irritations, and intolerances. Don't let it become a problem. Need to use macronutrient cycling. And there needs to be some mental thought put into what is the best thing for me to do you know, right now. You know, People change training very often. They don't change diet very often. And it has to change strategically to keep progress going. Um, I, I think that you have to, in terms of the training, you have to have a high level of intensity in terms of effort um, into the gym. And I'm not talking high intensity like hit training necessarily. I mean, I'm talking you have to push yourself to – achieve more, uh, not necessarily in terms of volume, but intensity in terms of training quality. And that's a lot to do with loading and other parameters. Because if you don't, the body doesn't respond, especially more advanced you become. Let me think. Life-wise, any good life lessons? Geez, there's so many. I don't know. Um, boy. Don't, don't be an asshole. I, you know, what, what, yeah, I think one of the things I say very often, don't make the simple stuff hard. Um, you know you should be on a good sleep cycle. You know you shouldn't be using drugs or alcohol. You know you should try and resolve stressful situations before they linger. Um, you know you should try and avoid situations, bad situations, by eliminating people in your life that are high risk or very negative or just who engage in a lot of dumb things. Um, get away from that because you don't need those kind of problems. Boy, you know, and in terms of business, there's all kinds of separate things. You know, I mean, the business landscape is very, very challenging. There's a lot of competition. Um, it's, uh, I think, much harder now than perhaps it was 10, 20 years ago to be successful in business. You know, there's a lot of people that are very entrepreneurial. But before you do that, be careful what you wish for because I don't know any successful entrepreneurs, and I know a lot of them as clients and other colleagues and other people in general. I don't know any of them that aren't work obsessed. If you think you're going to be an entrepreneur and successful working 40 hours a week, you're fucking crazy, okay? That does not exist. You're working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. You're sacrificing holidays. You're making all kinds of personal sacrifices before you're going to be successful. And it will take that kind of effort to uh, sustain that success. And this is one that I get all the time. Constantly getting calls from these business coaches and other bullshitters. It's like, how would you like to work 20 hours a week and do this? this? Fuck you. I don't want to hear this bullshit. Because let me tell you, if you were so successful in all this bullshit you're talking about, you wouldn't be calling me. You know, but... Um, there are certain people out there that say you can accomplish so much working so few hours a week. I, that to me is the biggest crock I've ever heard in my life. I, I just, if I'm certain of one thing and as I'm almost 40 years old, if you're going to be very successful in any kind of entrepreneurial field, which a lot of trainers are entrepreneurial, a lot of nutrition experts and so forth, you are going to have to make a lot of sacrifices and work very, very hard for a long time to achieve success to grow success and to sustain it. Now, what's my advice to a lot of people, business people and so forth, some people are cut from the cloth that make them perfect to work in corporate America, 
corporate Ireland where you can work 40, 45 hours a week. Yeah, you have some bureaucratic stuff, but you get the, the vacation, you get you know a good salary and opportunity for advancement, and that's great for a lot of people. It, it, it really is if you're wanting to follow up on, on that path. Um, and that's a better situation for a lot of people. Um, you know, so from a business standpoint, it's kind of like, what do you want to do? Be careful in terms of what you're wanting to do and what kind of effort it's really going to take by talking to other people who have that experience. How do you define success? I think that's defined by each individual person. You know, to me, uh, you know, success is, you know, some economic freedom to do what you want to do. Of course, you know, economic security, um, having time, free time to do things that you want to do. So it's not necessarily always measured, you know, on a financial scale, though a lot of people in the U.S. certainly do it that way. And maybe they're rich at 45 and dead at 48. and They think that was a success. Well, I'm not trying to talk people out of that. I don't care. I mean, if that's what you really want to do, I, you know, I can only do so much in terms of explaining things. Um, to people and you know I'm not a life coach um, but um, I, I think having a good you know work to life balance and achieving things you know that you want I mean I work with a lot of clients they really like working the hours they like getting up early working late um, and uh, they really thrive on achievement yet they make a lot of time for family activities and other things that they want to do I'll give you an example I have a client he uh, he's into uh, a lot of water skiing stuff so he goes to see these remote remote places, and he's a corporate attorney, and it's it's very hard. He works a lot of hours. He wouldn't be able to afford to do all that different stuff, going to Fiji and different parts of these remote places to water ski and do cost stuff like that. If he did not work very hard professionally, he wouldn't be able to finance. So a good example of one relationship to the other. But he really enjoys doing that when he gets back from a trip. He gets right back on track in terms of training, his work, and has things worked out where it's a good balance for him. But yet in a given average week, he's working 70 hours on difficult cases. And some people look at that as, that's crazy. Well, not to him. You know, that's what he likes. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's once, once the individual is fully aware, uh, fully aware of what they're trading off in terms of, of their goals, like then there's no judgment with that. So, like, again, there, there are some people who work ridiculous hours, but they absolutely love what they do. And yeah. if, they're, if they're fully aware of the trade-offs that's making in terms of maybe time with family or in terms of their long-term health, and they're like, I'm aware of those things and I'm willing to make that sacrifice, well, then that's fair enough. But I think there is the vast majority of people who actually do live those lifestyles where they are working a ridiculous amount of hours and they're not aware of, how fucked up this is going to make in the long term in terms of relationships with their with their family, friends, and their health. So you know, I think again, once once people are aware of sacrifices and trade-offs have to make, and and they're they're willing to make sacrifices and trade-offs, well, then there's no judgment with that at all. Just just like in the case of people who don't want to work, you know, 70, 80, 90 hours a week, they're like, no, actually, I'm happy enough just working 35, 40, and just making a salary. That's and and to them, yeah. to them, that's success. That's success because it allows them to have. Uh, a greater emphasis on their own personal health it allows them to live the lifestyle they want in terms of time with their their family so again yep. it, it, everyone's uh, priorities and values are different and once people are very certain of what they want from from their from, they're very certain about their core values and their priorities still then there's no judgment on that whatsoever absolutely um i was gonna ask you 
aside from Dr. Serrano, because I'm sure he'll be one answer to this question, what would your top resource, your top resources be to all the listeners? So by a top resource, I mean, I know it could be a book, it could be books, it could be videos, podcasts, online courses, in-person courses, an actual person themselves, a mentorship. Uh-huh. But so, because I know Dr. Strano will be top of mind awareness there, but is there any other top resources you'd recommend? And it can be anything again, it could be a life resource, training resource, nutrition, spiritual, business, whatever. Business wise, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. Okay. Every day. Um, in terms of the things in training, nutrition, there's so many. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't nail it down to one. And I'm not one of those people that necessarily says, I'm going to follow this person. I'm going to read all their books and go to all their courses. I think you get kind of pigeonholed doing that into, into one particular type of information. So I'm careful about rotating different things that I'm looking at. In terms of many things as it relates to training, I'm not seeking out what a lot of other people know. Uh, and I know that sounds crazy, but I find the most productive learning that I do is experimenting with clients based on some things that I've kind of thought of in the gym one day, working out myself, where I get a lot of creative thought done and say, well, if I put the muscle to this range of motion or this particular challenge because I'm seeking an answer to a problem a client's having, how will that work? Well, let's go try it <laughs> with a bunch of people. And again, as long as I'm not risking injury, I'm going to try different things. That's where I get a lot done in terms of training. On the nutrition side, I don't look at any mainstream stuff because these people are clueless. Um, I don't think they work with real clients. And if they do, they don't have very much in terms of success. I'll do similar things. I'll uh, play with the ratios of dietary fat, protein, and carbohydrate. I mean, one of the things that I've played with quite a bit over the past couple of years is how do you help people navigate the holidays in terms of meal structure? How can you take advantage of days that they're eating a lot of food, with some of those food choices being far less than perfect to be advantageous for muscle growth and body fat loss? How does the body respond in terms of hormones and enzymes and fat cells? And how do, those, how do you capitalize on those things? So I do a lot of thinking and experimentation in my own head. Um, and um, I'm learning at a pretty good rate because I'm implementing new things with clients all the time that are working. So I really, I, I really can't point to a lot of individuals that, you know, I've said this particular thing they've done that's great. I'm going to the Swiss conference um, next weekend, and there's some very good speakers there. A couple I'm skeptical. A couple I know are very good. So, you know, maybe that'll change my mind on some things, um, you know, looking at and saying, what do these people know? Um, where are some opportunities for me to learn if I dig deeper? Hopefully these people will give presentations that give a lot of solid information. Sometimes they're careful because they, they want, um, they don't want to focus too much on one particular things. They're doing overviews. You know, I like to see nuts and bolts, so to speak, you know, so there'll be some great speakers there in Toronto. Uh, that conference has very good speakers. It's a Swiss W excuse me, SWIS is run by Ken Kanakin, who you probably met there at uh, the ISI Symposium. Um, the ISI Symposium is also very good. They've had some very good speakers there. Uh, Owen Lacey's a very good speaker. Um, very, very good speaker. Um, let me think who else was there. Heather Pearson did a very good talk with Ken Kanakin on treatments, injury treatments, ART. She does advanced ART. That was very good, doing some practical things. 
in terms of what she was doing. Trying to think of the other speakers that I thought, because I spent a lot of time in some meetings and didn't see all of them there. Uh, who were the other speakers? Do you remember? Uh, Plummer on the microbiome was very good. Uh, I didn't follow anything he said from start to finish. Yeah, I thought he was good. I liked him. He, I think he's a very intelligent guy. I don't think that probiotics are the answer to everything. Uh, obviously, he is a subject matter expert. So, yeah, if you had questions on that, he'd be the guy to go to. But I just didn't follow it. I was preoccupied yeah. with something else I was doing. He sounds like Michael Caine, which is always a bonus. Uh, Luke, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Luke, Luke, Luke Lehman was decent. Um, Danny Lennon was fantastic. He had a great presentation. Um, he was very good on just like body weight manipulation because he he does a lot of work with fighters too. And I like I think, okay. I think Danny's nutritional information is outstanding. To be honest, so I'm obviously very biased. Great. I know him, but uh, just think he's uh -huh. he's very logical, common sense. Um, uh, Victoria Faulkner was very good. You know, yeah, she uh, was. On, yeah, she was very very good. She let us know that the vagina has teeth. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, she sure, yeah, I think she's another subject matter expert on an area of female health and how do you uh, orientate nutrition programs based on a lot of different elements. I, I think that she's very, very sharp. Yeah, Ish, uh, Ishvan Javorik was there. I actually didn't see any Ishvan's presentations, but Ishvan was there. John Connor presented, Damian Manor presented. Yeah, there was all Savage, and then obviously Ken and Heather presented well as well. So there was, yeah, some fantastic uh, presenters there. Uh, Alexander Ferretti was quite good too on like biomarkers. So he was kind of presented on a lot on like his um, experiments on himself, tracking his HRV. And he was just tracking other health measures on himself. Uh, he tracked like his blood, blood, uh, blood glucose. I think he was tracking his sleep as well. And he was just kind of showing like how different life variables, you know, kind of impacted on all these tracking measures that he had and what he kind of sees as like the future in terms uh -huh. of people being able to look after that stuff. So yeah, he was good too. Owen had one on sleep, which I, I missed because I think I went to uh, Alex Alexander Freddy's one was on at the same time, but I missed the one I owned it on sleep, but I heard it was excellent too. And Owen is a... It was, it, it, it was good. Yes, it was. I was yeah. there for that. Yeah, but usually it just it distills it distills down to uh, cold, dark room, no electronics, get AM sunlight, don't have any blue light on at nighttime, block blue light, wear wear blue shades. You know what I mean? It usually just breaks down. He he had some interesting things about breathing as well. They were doing some mouth taping, which yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, won't, yeah. won't work for me. Won't work for me. But um, some of them have experimented with that. That was interesting. I, yeah. You know, I don't remember all of the science behind her benefits but i think he looks into a lot of details he works with real uh clients so he, he's got a lot of good information that you know he's learned over time and you know actually I, I think proven many of these things to work maybe not on a huge scale but uh he's very sharp yeah he is definitely in terms of just of resources like uh, like whenever i get asked uh, one of my kind of go-to answers is that like the more science you can learn understand the better off you're going to be so you know Getting, yeah. you know get, getting like just basic knowledge in the areas of biology chemistry physics maths and you know physiology as well like they'll all help you too because uh -huh. they'll all increase your bullshit detector rather than saying like go to this course or that person if you get a fundamental understanding of first principles in terms of science it's, it'll, it'll give you a great foundation and for distilling what's fucking true and not true uh, yeah it can help you certainly sort sort through a lot of different research you know for example one of the things that dr Serrano told some students not long ago that really blew their mind is you may not want to look so closely at studies involving rats when you're trying to draw conclusions to humans Certainly rats are convenient. You can hit them with needles, you can throw them in the air, you can do all these different things in uh, research, 
because look, I mean, they're rats. You don't need uh, to deal with humans. Humans are expensive. You can't just do whatever you want with human studies, yeah. but they're not genetically the same as humans. And so some of the conclusions that come from certain studies focusing on rats may not be the best information to rely on in all areas. Um, so if you know that, you can kind of sort out what is the best research to rely on to give you some good ideas. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. what is the, the motivation of certain resources? Where was the paper done? You know, so uh, who's writing these things? What's their purpose? What are some of the parameters? What are the experience levels of the subjects who are in a certain study? Are they trained? Are they untrained? So, yeah, you can develop a good eye with a scientific background and common sense to know what research is best to read and what may not be as uh, groundbreaking as it sounds. Yeah, good stuff. All right, you've got one year left on planet Earth for whatever reason. How would you spend that year and why? You know, I know a lot of people would say they travel around the globe. I'm not interested in that. I don't like airplanes. I don't like airports. I don't like sitting next to people on airlines who are oozing into my seat. Um, I don't like like exotic food, stuff like that. So it wouldn't involve any of that stuff. I'll tell you that right now. I don't know. I couldn't be one of those people that's just like, well, I'm not going to work anymore and stay idle. I, I just uh, don't feel very productive that way. I'd probably take some more time to train, maybe visit with some other people I was curious about in terms of uh, training stuff or different athletes, try and pick their brain. But you never know if you can gain access to those people. Um, so it's not like you can show up and say, hey, you know, I need a, an hour of your time or, or whatever. I think I would do a lot of gambling. <laughs> I like that. I, I would. Uh, Fuck I, it, I think I would do a lot of. I think I would do a lot of gambling. Um, I like to go to Disney World. I might go there a few times. I actually like that place. I know a lot of people can't stand it with lines and, and whatever, but you know, I find that place to be really entertaining. I don't know. I have to put some more thought into that one, but I'm pretty confident my lifespan is going to be pretty long because I don't do dumb shit. Yeah. You know, when I see a lot of these people who are crashing and burning in society, it's not a mystery. They're using all kinds of drugs and alcohol to cope with other problems they have. And, you know, I'm not an addiction expert. I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how some of these very successful people uh, who have all kinds of financial resources end up addicted to drugs and ruin their lives. I don't get it. I don't see the attraction. I don't see why people need to drink alcohol all the time, uh, why they're smoking cigarettes and why they're doing other things makes zero sense to me. I can relate not whatsoever i don't understand it um you, you need to start researching the brain then Re read the policies well I, I i know in that certainly there's impacts that you know look food affects the brain in a lot of different ways people develop addictions to sugar so i do understand some things there but if you're a successful person you know uh, an actor again, or something again like that, define success though okay if you are perceived in the mainstream media in the United States as very successful by being an actor that gets $20 million per movie, and you're going to act like a complete asshole. Like, I was just at the UFC 229, okay? I had second-row seats, and there were a lot of celebrities in there, and some of them could not chug the alcohol fast enough before it could be brought to them. And one of them has, you know, a handler with him to make sure, I don't know, I guess he doesn't throw up in public or completely mm. fall down. 
he was in a disguise. He looked like a moron. Um, and I had actually dealt with this person many years ago um, as a client where his assistant would ring me nonstop. And they didn't want to pay for anything. So where it ultimately was, I don't work that way. Um, and uh, this person has deteriorated. I don't understand why, because at the point that I had started to interact with him, a lot of things were going very well for him. And then somehow he went down this road of, well, I'm really successful. I need to emulate this actor and that actor and, and start doing other dumb shit, like drinking all the time. And he does not look good. Uh, I hope I don't see him in the news soon. But I was just observing him, and I was like, what, where did things go wrong? And I didn't talk to him. I don't know if he'd even remember who I was. But uh, um, those are a lot of people in the U.S. media. They're revered. They're so great. Everything they say is so important, even though they're idiots. And they have a lot of money, at least in a period of time. And uh, they're glorified in the media, yet they have terrible habits with relationships, with drugs and alcohol, and a lot of them crash and burn. And I do not understand why they're so revered um, among the, the, the U.S. media uh, titans, so to speak, constantly given all this attention and you know publicity when really they, they, they don't have a lot of substance. That's not all of them. There's some that are very intelligent that I've dealt with. Um, but some of them, I, 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 I don't get it. I don't get it. They're on a path to destruction. Do you not think though that there would be, there's a reason why that's the case? I think because in reality, a lot of the actors and actresses get into drugs and alcohol because they're being manipulated by business managers, producers, and other people that have a vested interest in controlling them. Mm-hmm. Not a conspiracy theory. I think that uh, no, 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 they want to they want to keep these people on a certain on a certain track so they can profit from them and uh, giving them drugs and alcohol helps control them. Yeah, yeah. Just and like, putting other uh, ideas in their head. Yeah, like everyone and everything is the way they are for a reason. So like, there's always a why behind every behavior. So it's just like when people go, I don't understand it. It's like, well, try to understand it. There's a reason. Like. No, nobody, yeah. no, nobody really wants to self-destruct themselves. There, there's, there's a reason why that's going on. And most of the time, the people who are self-destructive, they're oblivious to why they are self-destructive to themselves. But I mean, all you can do is try to understand them and have empathy and compassion. But uh, listen, I mean, like if, if, the, if there is people out there in the news or whatever, I don't have a TV, so I never see the fucking news. But uh, like you get people like complaining about it, just like don't watch it then. Like, don't let you, if you can't control it, well, why are you watching? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't, for the most part. Uh, sometimes clients bring up, well, I saw such and such in this celebrity diet. And I say, listen, if you think they're actually doing that diet, I got news for you. It's yeah. something they got paid for to put their name on. You know, so I hear that sometimes. I do every once in a while, if I'm in an airport open, you know, one of these, or I'll go into the newsstand and read many of the magazines just to see what kind of stuff's put out there in case they get questions put on it. Uh, from people and the, the quality of the information is very poor. Uh, and again, in many of these diet books that's being published in many of the magazines, you know, they all have an agenda for, for what they're doing. So, you know, that's where I get exposed to a lot of the things because, you know, I want to see what's going on in the marketplace in terms of different trends and so forth. But it's just more to, to deal with some idle time than anything. 
Yeah, yeah. It's just for uh, people are used to. Uh, by the way, just so you know, Ken Kanakin was on his podcast before. Just when you mentioned Mary Ronnie, to say that. So he's been a very, this. very sharp guy. I mean, you know, it's interesting about Ken is since he's been hosting the Swiss Conference for a long time, he's had contact with a lot of very good speakers and presenters going back many years. So I think that's given him the ability to identify who's the most successful with their patients or their clients. And, you know, different things like that. So he can kind of identify who are really the best presenters. So he has a lot of experience collaborating and observing many, many very, very capable and intelligent people. Mm. So, you know, he's a a very good um, um, resource. Absolutely. And a very good uh, chiropractor. As a matter of fact, every time I see him, I hit him up for a free adjustment because my T3 in my spine is always rotated. He knows exactly how to fix it. He's strong enough to, to do it. So if anybody's wondering, he is a real chiropractor. He's quite good at it in terms of his real practice. Yeah, he treated Tony Robbins before. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's Tony Robbins is a big guy. Tony Robbins was at the UFC fight. He's like 6'6", six, six or oh, something huge. like that. He's huge. He, uh, he had a tumor on his pituitary when he was younger, and, and he had a massive growth spurt, and he didn't know why, and then they found out he had a tumor on his pituitary. Oh, I didn't know that, but yeah, he's a big dude. I had never really seen him in person. I've not really followed him. I figured he was a person of average build or whatever, but I saw him walk oh, down. Yeah. I'm like, he's, he's big. He, yeah, uh, people sitting behind him were struggling. He was in serious health trouble there about two years ago. He had fucking massive mercury po- le- levels in his blood, um, like massive, like off the charts. Like apparently, you might know more than this, but apparently like the the blood marker, like it's not meant to be any hard. And like, I think it's on a scale of 10 and his was like at 123 or something like that. And like when they found out, they're like, uh, they're like contact with Tony, you got, we got to sort this out. Because he was having all these neurological symptoms. Like he, uh, he was getting some spinal stenosis in his neck and his, he was, his arms were going numb and all. And uh, then he went, to, he went over to see this guy in Australia, Dr. Shade, I think is his name. And he's apparently an expert in, uh, just plugging in my laptop there. He's an expert apparently in like uh, fucking toxic t- toxins and stuff like that, like mer- or poisons, mercury and all that stuff or whatever. But uh, uh-huh. it, they cleared out. But uh, sure, like all he ate for like years and years, Tony Robbins was swordfish and tuna. So like oh, the amount of mercury, yeah, like that's all he had every single day over and over and over again. You know, you find with people like him, he's very, obviously very, very intelligent. Okay. But sometimes the personality is such, they believe so much in doing a certain things in terms of nutrition and training, that they won't deviate from it. You can't change their mind and they do it so consistently that they make themselves sick. I mean, that's an example. He read somewhere, I'm sure that fish are great for you. And, you know, eat a lot of tuna and swordfish and, you know, uh, subconsciously he's poisoning himself with mercury because of uh, high mercury levels in this particular fish. So you'd be surprised there's some very, very intelligent people that do things that don't make a lot of sense because for whatever reason they become very dogmatic in a certain area. Exercise is another one. You'll find there's a lot of um, corporate CEOs, very talented people that train for a couple hours each day and they're more endurance athletes. One, I don't know where they find the time, as busy as they are, and they have so many problems with energy, with joints, but they must run X amount of distance each day because yeah. they feel like if they don't, they're a failure, meaning while it makes no sense because they're having all these issues, similar kind of thing. Very, very intelligent people 
but for whatever reason, do some things that don't make sense. It's a coping mechanism, Scott. It's a self-medication. That's what it is. It gives people a uh, sense. It could be. It gives people a sense of certainty in their life. I go running on my lunchtime every lunchtime, and I'm a Type A personality, yeah. and I must do it because I have to struggle to prove myself worth in life. Yeah, it's it's, it's a coping mechanism, safety mechanism. We all, every one of us, have our little safety blankets that we that we utilize probably mostly on a daily basis you know whether it's like everyone has a coping strategy whether it's a religious belief political belief ideological belief or it's a nutritional habits that you have or your exercise routine yeah. or just your daily lifestyle routines because they add a certain a sense of they add an element of certainty to your life because the biggest question we all have is what the fuck do we do after this life like nobody knows what happens when you die so to sort of output that void and make it feel like we're in control, we like to have like these certain coping mechanisms or safety blankets. But I see that a lot with those type A personalities. They just fucking run on their lunch and run into their fucking life. And then they crow, they have a heart attack like at 58. And people then confuse fucking like, this is where people confuse fitness with health. You know, they'd see, yeah. oh, yeah, aerobically he was fit, but he wasn't healthy. 50, people at 58, unless it's genetic, don't fucking collapse with a heart attack. Like, they think he was healthy because he jogged on his lunch break, whereas, like, no, he was stressed to the balls. He was in sympathetic mode 24-7. Digestive system in bits. Fucking diet was in bits. His life was in bits. Everything about it was in bits except this little jogging you saw for one hour a day thinking he was healthy because, again, you confuse fitness with health. But anyway, that's a whole other side, side, uh, side chain of the story. Listen, I have two more questions here for you. What, uh, what's your top and current reading recommendations so what's the number one book you'd give away to everyone on the planet and then what are you currently reading lone survivor is a book about marcus luttrell and other navy seals that went um yeah it's a, it's a movie. afghanistan it's a, it's a movie yep it's a yeah. movie the book actually differs a little bit but what i was simply amazed with was how he survived the circumstances and just the absolute terrible circumstance that those four men were put in and put up a hell of a fight in the uh in the face of absolute destruction yeah you know the you know they don't know exactly how many taliban assholes were there um but they think that those four navy seals killed in the several hundreds potentially of these uh taliban terrorists who had uh, all kinds of operational advantages in terms of the terrain, um, resources, uh, element of surprise, uh, tactical positions, and, and so forth. Yet these four men fought them off pretty damn well with one surviving being able to tell the story. Um, not related to training, not related to nutrition, but you look at the determination that certain people have to get things done and how they accomplish them. It's pretty amazing when you say, or a client tells me, I couldn't find time to train. Well, I guess it's a matter of how important is it to you to get certain things done? Because certainly when you look at the extreme circumstances of many of these people and these Navy SEALs, they certainly find a way, <laughs> um, you know, to get things done in terms of their preparation and training. And it pays off because that's what they do. No excuses. Nothing's impossible. Never quit. So that's just one book that I that I really found inspiring in terms of how Marcus Luttrell, who I have not met, um, was able to you know survive that situation, um, and you know, and other things you know about his his upbringing and you know how his approach was and how he str struggled very uh, you know significantly. It's not easy to become. Um, a Navy SEAL. So I like a lot of those books. Those people are very, very determined and accomplished, and very, 
difficult things. Um, is it true that one of the Afghanistanis took him in, like in the movie? Is that true? Yes, yes. So why why did he do that? Why why did Afghanis do that? Well, many of the, uh, the the Afghans didn't like the Taliban, but had to put up with them. Right? Mm, they had yeah. to coexist with them because they did fear getting killed by the Taliban. Who would have no problem putting someone who's completely innocent on the chopping block, cutting their heads off. Um, so you had villages, and there was a villager that discovered Marcus Luttrell, who at the time was desperately crawling into a ravine to drink water. He'd been without water for quite some time, very hot conditions. His legs were shot up. He'd been very badly wounded. He literally crawled miles. And uh, I believe it was an Afghan, uh, maybe a couple of other villagers, and a couple of kids that discovered him and decided to help him. And in their tradition... When you bring somebody into your village who's a guest, who they turn to as a guest, they would protect you with their life. It's a something that goes back many thousands of years that they don't deviate from. Mm. And uh, when the Taliban knew he was there, they refused to give him up. And ultimately, um, you know, the uh, the villagers had to take up arms against the Taliban, and there was almost many, you know, uh, deadly confrontations. Yet the Taliban could not push too hard because they knew if they killed a lot of the villagers, they would no longer have their assistance for things they needed in terms of shelter, food, and water at times. It's a very complicated situation, but ultimately, you know, when uh, one of the uh, uh, Afghani villagers walked to a base uh, based on a map um, and told them and gave them evidence that Marcus Luttrell was there, then you had a significant U.S. force come in and and, uh, rescue him. Yeah. And at the same time, the Taliban, who was still pursuing him, was nearby, and they, you know, the, the U.S. forces engaged and killed them all. Uh, you know, who knows who escaped or whatever, but resolved that particular conflict with that particular warlord at that time, who they were originally seeking, who was responsible for the deaths of a lot of U.S. soldiers um, before that. If you weren't an American, uh, what other country would you have liked to be from? I don't know. You know, I, I haven't been to that many places. Let me think. I've been to Mexico. Uh, people there are very nice, um, but uh, I, I don't. I don't like the political climate there. It's a scary place to be at times, from what I understand. Uh, I was recently in the Dominican Republic. who didn't look around. Seemed like nice enough people. I'm thinking one of the Caribbean places is where I would land because I like the climate. They seem to be easygoing people. I like Ireland. Really nice people. Um, Canada is a nice place. I've been to a few times. Uh, I've never been to the Far East. I've never been to the Middle East. I've never been to Africa. I'm not going to Africa. Uh, I don't like that kind of hot. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I just imagine the airports and stuff like that. You know, maybe I'm ignorant and I've seen movies and there's some nice places there, but not doing it. I just don't like to travel. Um, I'm not going to Russia. Uh, don't, uh, don't like the cold and their food doesn't look good. Not going there. Uh, you know, uh, trying to think, uh, I think, I think there's a lot of places I haven't been. I'd say clock off would disagree. I think the food there is lovely. <laughs> I don't know. The stuff I've seen looks like, you know, porridge or stuff like that. Doesn't look good. Um, a lot of sauerkraut. So Being your element, a lot of sauerkraut. Good for your gut. Yeah. You know, if the food doesn't look good, I'm probably not going there. I'd like to go to Japan. It looks interesting. I like Japanese food to some degree. Uh, not going to China. Um, 
the uh, you know, I've known people have been there and they say, you know, in some of the major cities that the air is so bad it makes them sick. Well, I, I don't need to do that. I, I don't have a pressing reason to go there. Um, and you find that with a lot of international clients, and I've been fortunate to work with some very, very wealthy people, they're in the U.S. at some point over another pretty often. So I have no reason to go see you in China. If you're going to be in the U.S., I'll see you there. Um, and uh, there are certain cities that many you know, international businessmen visit very often. It's not that hard to coordinate with them. But China doesn't sound attractive to me because of the pollution there. Uh, Apparently Los Angeles is just as bad. Could be. I haven't been there in a while, but I believe it. I mean, the traffic in L.A. is so terrible. There's places near L.A. You're talking Orange County and going farther south of San Diego that are very, very nice. I have a lot of clients in those parts. Um, San Diego. So there, there's... Oh yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of nice things about California, but certain parts of the state are are very very congested. The resources are are very very constrained, um, you know, because of the population. Uh, so yeah, I don't know that I would want to be living in Los Angeles and wanting to be commuting two hours to work each way, fighting traffic. That's not me. Very true. San Diego apparently it means a whale's vagina. Do you know that? Did not know that. Now that <laughs> I know that, maybe I'll need to go there sooner. Um, I like Ireland. You know, I've been to uh, Belfast a couple of times, very much like uh, many other cities that I've seen. Very nice people going about their daily work and daily business, so to speak. I've been to Malahide a couple of times. Nice, nice town. But I, yeah. you know, Ireland, very, very friendly, very nice, very nice place yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not too sure how many Taliban listeners I have, by the way. Just you, you call them a lot of assholes. <laughs> I'm with they Taliban. Can, <laughs> they can fuck off. You do, you know, really, uh, do you not do you not realize you could you could have just been born as a Taliban and you just came out with a different vagina? You know, but and I understand that when you like say, if you were if you were born look at if, if you were born there you're told you're told you're told right. that they won't. I understand that. Assholes. I understand that, but the the go on the way that these people think that their basis of thinking is that everybody else should die because they don't conform to what we think is so fundamentally wrong that any person in my mind that has any kind of independent thought or intelligence should be able to say this is wrong I'm out of here and I know that's easier said than done yeah. but the evil of those people and the suffering they brought to so many people uh, I, I don't understand any basis or how they could possibly justify it. And I don't have to, you, you know, and it, nobody cares what I think on the topic anyway, but well, you, um, you, you do understand it. You just said that you did understand it. Well, meaning that I understand it's very difficult to escape that situation. If yeah, you're exactly. born into it, yeah. I would like to think based on some fundamental intelligence that I have that I know right from wrong. Um, and that if I was in that situation, I'd find a way to separate myself from it. Can mm -hmm. I change everybody else's mind? I don't know. But hey, that's, that's a, a big, tall that's theory. A, I'm not there. That's a big I'm not there. Yeah, I'm not there. But, uh, um, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But, you know, from that conflict in the U.S., there are a lot of veterans. Look, there are a lot of people that died over there. There's a lot of American veterans that are suffering from terrible injuries. Their, their yeah, cost. Scott, Scott uh, that, that's, that's a two-way street, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what brought the conflict? It's because they flew planes into a tower, right? It's not like we picked a fight with them. Um, but uh, it, it's, you know, war, there's a lot of costs to war, and you're constantly reminded of it. Here in the U.S., there's a lot of veterans that uh, 
ongoing remind you daily of the sacrifices they made and a lot of troubles they have. So, yeah. you know, you don't take war lightly, certainly. Um, um, but what's, what's uh, the, I, I hope there aren't, aren't any more conflicts. That's all I can What's I the can solution say. to this? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think any of these world leaders really know either. I think most of them actively don't want conflict. Maybe some do. Um, but I think that they're all realizing the economic and political costs of war. So most politicians and world leaders will try to avoid it because, again, their number one priority is self-preservation. But when you find certain leaders where uh, war is good for them politically, they're going to do it. Um, but there may be fewer of those. I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, again, I, I, I read the paper, I read political news and try and keep some ideas on things. I tend to think that a lot of the people posturing, let's say North Korea, for example, it's economic blackmail. I don't think that that regime wants a nuclear war with anybody. I certainly, I hope not. Because if they did, they weren't already done it. Um, I think it's just their way of trying to extract international funding. Uh, I think there's better ways to go about it. But uh, I don't lose a lot of sleep over that one um, in particular. I, I don't think they're completely crazy. I think that uh, it's their way of trying to gain international bargaining power with other countries to avoid a war. Yeah, yeah, good saying. Yeah, just kind of what, what, it doesn't frustrate me because I'm very laid back, but when I hear people condemning other people, it's all just pure luck. I mean, you could have came out of a fucking Afghan, Afghanistan vagina and then you were told from day mm -hmm. one, hey, you see all them people over there, they're infidels, and if they're saying it against Muhammad, we're going to kill them. Does that sound good to you? And you're like, yeah, okay, if you heard that from day one. It's like over here in Ireland, like if you were born a Catholic up in the north, you were told Protestants are a shower of bastards. And then if you were born on the Protestant right. side of the wall, you were told here, Catholics are a shower of cunts. Then it's the same Then if you go to, to Israel and Palestine. If you're born as an Israeli, you're told right. Palestinians are a fucking shower of fuckers. And then same then if, if you're a Palestinian, you're told here, Israelis are a shower, shower of bastards. So it all just comes right. into an environment. Like, so no baby's born into the world and they're just like, they straight away are like, yeah, I'm going to kill me some fucking whatever. Like, that's all learned. That's all, that's all brainwashing. Yep. Now, yep. Just, just, just so we're clear on that, I'm not... Uh, that doesn't give people a free pass either. I'm just saying, I always challenge people to always ask why, why mm. someone or cert, certain situation is the way it is, rather than just being like, ignorant to me, like, I don't know, don't know, just, just they should be all killed. That's just like stupid. Doesn't solve anything. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I thought there was going to be a follow on there. Uh, listen, no, I'm I, I, uh, I don't put a whole lot of thought into the philosophical part. Maybe I'm very reactive to these, you know, situations yeah, yeah. and haven't studied it very well. But people's, you know, putting yeah. yourself in other people's shoes is a good exercise to do mentally, and I do that with clients a lot. What is their thinking? Yeah. Why? How do I better explain this? Uh, where are they coming from? So that's always a good drill. I have not done that. That whole process of putting myself in the shoes of someone else and a country thousands of miles away where everything's been different for them culturally from day one. Yeah. I have not done that. Either. It's no. funny because when people always ask me nowadays, like, how are you doing? My standard answer is I'm a white male in a first world country. I hit the fucking lotto. Mm -hmm. Like we've got nothing. Uh, about. When you look at people's circumstances that are much harder than yours, sometimes it can give you an appreciation for all the things fucking, that are going well. Fucking Absolutely. Too right, Absolutely. but look, me and you are on a bleeding computer here. How privileged are we, for fuck's sake? Like nobody's coming. Oh, to yeah. our, nobody's coming to our village today to chop our heads off or anything. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have one more question for you. We're going yeah. to din- we're going to dinner, and you can invite mm-hmm. five people to this dinner, and these five people can be dead or alive. Who would you bring to this dinner, and why? Okay, I'm thinking. <laughs> That's all right. I've only got five, so I got to make them count. Ronald Reagan. Why? <clears throat> Ronald Reagan, to me, was one of the most skilled negotiators in the history of the world because he had a Russian empire, Soviet empire opposite to him, that he made them believe he was completely crazy, yet he wasn't. I'd want to ask him what with his, his, with his fucking was. With his fucking Star Wars, that was a genius move. <laughs> it was. And he bankrupted them uh, using psychological warfare, but he made them believe it. And he negotiated with them one-on-one and made them believe that uh, he would not back down to positions of strength. And that's a hard thing to do when the whole free world's counting on you. Um, that would be one. Um, geez, I, I, I thought about this once before, and I'm trying to remember who was on the, uh, who was on the list. Uh, There was, um, I'm trying to remember his name. He was a, a boxer. They made a movie about him, and I researched him a little bit. He, uh, it was the movie called Cinderella Man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, and I don't his, know his, his name. His, his real name, I'm trying to rem- remember his real name, and I, geez, I've brought him up so many times before. We can, we can Google it there while you think of other people. Go on, you go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. He would have been one just because purely of his determination and the very difficult circumstances he was in um, and how he was able to really turn things around. Just a very interesting uh, story uh, on him. You still there? Yeah, I'm still there. I'm trying to think of the other ones that I had. Uh, there's a football coach named Joe Gibbs, uh, American football coach, very, yeah. very successful and innovative. I'd want to meet him to talk to him a lot about strategy because he changed a lot of things. Somebody I followed very closely. James, James Braddock. Was that his name? The boxer. Yeah, Jim Braddock. Jim Braddock. Jim Braddock. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Joe Gibbs, yes, yeah, sure. He uh, he coached the Redskins to three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks. That is correct. That is correct. Yeah, I know um, my also, I know my American also, sports and history. Yeah. I know all, I know all, I, I know all your American presidents too. Reagan, forty president, yeah. I actually like Jimmy Carter more, to be honest. He's very successful. Uh Joe Gibbs also in auto racing, um, yeah. Too, but uh, <sighs> I'm trying to think of two others um, that are worthy here. You know, not spit out somebody that's uh, hmm. uh, probably Rodney Dangerfield. It was a comedian. Another guy came from very difficult circumstances and managed to make a lot of people laugh at his own expense. Mm. but was extremely entertaining. Yeah. Um, that's not an easy thing to do, to, to make a room full of people laugh night after night to be really good at it. Yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah. he's one. He's been dead for a few years. Um, so that leaves me, what, uh, one more. Uh, I might even go in the direction of another comedian because I just find what they do very fascinating. Um, Um, 
boy, why am I not remembering his name? Bill Hicks. I bring I bring him up so much. No, he's um geez. I saw him perform a long time ago too. Is he American? Yeah. He he's on he was on the Tonight Show. He was on a lot of older shows, but performed well into his you know late eighties and nineties. Oh, Real George, smart ass. George Carlin? Huh? George Carlin? No, 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 no. He's he was good, but not him. Uh, older than him. Let me see if I can find um, find him on Google here. So who do we? Who was your first choice there again? Ronald Reagan. Oh yeah, we have Ronald Reagan, Jim Craddock, uh, Braddock, jo- yeah. Joe Gibbs, Joe or Jim Braddock, Joe Gibbs, um, Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield, Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Uh, trying to find his name. I'm trying to. I just looked up wise ass comedians, and too many things come up. There, it. It's gas. <laughs> this guy said whatever he wanted, yet he made people pretty much feel pretty good about it, for the most part. Jim Braddock. Yeah. I don't think I saw that movie, Cinderella. Let's give it a watch. Well, Jim Braddock was a fighter and then came on hard times and lost all his money Jim in the Great Braddock. Depression and uh, somehow, you know, put himself back in a position to get some prize fights. And he was lucky in that there was an opportunity and nobody thought he could win. And I mean, he overcame some very um, extreme odds to uh, to be successful again and actually managed to retire from fighting and, and then uh, own some businesses. Um, so, but he was at the complete bottom as it was depicted. And most of it was pretty accurate from what I understand. Russell Crowe plays him. Correct. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if you sure listen, send me the name and I'll just stick into show notes. This name, if you can't find it. Yeah. It's not something we need to, uh, to solve right now. I'm looking through this one list. I can't believe it. Anyway. All right. Yeah. So I'll get you the other, the fifth yeah. one. I'll remember it. All right. Just for the people who want to contact you, give us some contact details. Scott at infinity fitness.com. Is there a website? Uh, yeah. Website. Yeah. Infinity fitness.com. We're hitting our 20th year anniversary in next month, 20 years. Wow. Um, yeah, this business is significant because, uh, again, I think there's a lot of people that get into it with good intentions and realize it's not as easy as they thought it would be mm. um, from many perspectives because you have to be in a constant state of learning and competitive struggle, as I call it. Uh, but uh, surprisingly, I respond to every email. Um, and yeah, you're, yeah, so you're, very, you email you're actually me, you're very responsive because I know when I emailed you, like email back like straight away. Yeah, and uh, you know if you have questions or things I can help you with, I will genuinely email you back, point you to articles and other things. And if there's something I can't answer, I'll tell you I can't answer it. But um, I, in this day and age, where a lot of the people uh, project themselves as accessible but are not, I'm very accessible. Uh, I enjoy interacting with a lot of people. So. My email again is scott, S-E-O-T-T, at infinityfitness.com. And, you know, I help people produce very good outcomes in terms of training, nutrition, supplementation, which we didn't get into. But uh, uh, I really thrive on uh, helping people earn great results. That's what it's all about for me. That's why I do it. You know, I, I get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of people making good transformations and 
uh, having a higher quality of life. We didn't get into that, but that's really my motivation for yeah. now and ongoing. All right, Scott, you mad bastard. Thanks a million for coming on today. I'll just wrap up the show and then I'll say goodbye to you offline. So for all the listeners, I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care, be well, and stay strong. Thank you.